Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Now, before you're seated, I'm going to ask that we would say the Lord's Prayer together. Um, We've been doing this throughout our Kingdom of God series But specifically and importantly, as we move in and through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer each and every Sunday before the sermon. So let's go ahead and pray. This then is how you should pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in Charlottesville as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You may be seated. It's hard for us to imagine the world of Jesus. But 9-11 can help us. The people of Jesus' day and Jesus himself had been attacked invaded and defeated by the Romans. Jesus was born in, grew up in, and lived in an occupied territory. The invaders were the Romans. They invaded and never left. And so in the days of Jesus, which is a religious Jewish community, the whole nation had a spiritual question that was constantly in conversation and in the front of their minds. Who is to blame? that God allowed us to be invaded? And what would it take for God to do something about it? And so in the midst of Roman occupation, the Jews were looking to the scriptures and looking to God, and they were trying to spiritually make heads or tails of what was going on. Because you see, the Romans didn't just come with occupation militarily. They also came with their worldview their view of the world, and their gods. And so again, the Jews had this question, who is to blame that we were invaded? Because in the Older Testament, when you were invaded by the Assyrians or the Babylonians, there's a spiritual reason why this has happened. And then when deliverance comes from God, it's because his people have done the right things so that deliverance will happen. It's interesting to note that in the days of Jesus, people responded to Roman occupation and Roman worldview five different ways. Some responded with violence. Some responded with total acceptance. Some responded with avoidance. Some with assimilation and some extracted from culture altogether. These five different responses to Rome and Rome's worldview is seen in the five theopolitical groups around Jesus during his day. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Zealots, and the Essenes. Those were five different responses to Rome and Rome's worldview and what God would have us to do about it. But all five of these views had one thing in common. All five were crying out to God for freedom and for deliverance. Because the Older Testament prophets had guaranteed that there would come a day when God's man, in God's age, 
in God's future would step into the world scene. The prophets had promised this and foretold this for hundreds and hundreds of years. They had prophesied and promised that God's kingdom would come, that God's will would be done through God's king. God's king would be called the Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ. Another way it was said was that God's son would arrive in the world and usher in God's kingdom. You see, that's the world in which John the Baptist steps into his ministry. The entire nation is looking to God for God's deliverer. When will he come? What are we still doing wrong that God has not delivered us from the Romans? And it's in that milieu that we read Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 15. And our focus this morning is on John the Baptist. Here's what the text says. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by John in the Jordan River. And John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate what none of us ate for breakfast, bugs and honey. And this was his message, after me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize with water, but he will baptize you with or in the Holy Spirit. And at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John. And just as John was coming up, or just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my Son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased." And after John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Believe the gospel. And last week, I stressed two things that I want to remind us of before we step into the rest of this sermon. I want us to always remember that the word gospel or good news is the Greek word euangelion, which means you good angelion announcement. And as I stressed last week, as good as the announcement is that I will have cheeseburgers for dinner. How many of you love cheeseburgers? It's a shame to know Jesus would never eat cheeseburgers because there's a Jewish law between mixing meat and dairy Oh, how he missed it. (laughs) As good as the announcement that cheeseburgers are for dinner, that does not qualify for the word gospel. You see, gospel is a very specific type of good news. Gospel is only about royal announcements of world-changing events, such as victory in battle, the birth of the heir to the throne, or the arrival of the king to a city. Gospel is specifically about kings and kingdoms. 
In other words, the fact that Queen Elizabeth has died and King Charles III is going to step onto the throne of England, that is euangelion. The announcement of their economy, the announcement of what's going, none of that qualifies for gospel. Gospel is only for the announcements of kings and of kingdoms. And now where we find ourselves in the reading of the story is we've got John the Baptist. And John is announcing that God's man has arrived. John is announcing something unique. By the way, for those of you who like to go much deeper in Scripture, I'm just going to give you a little hint. But if you were to take Samson's birth story of his mom and his dad and his birth and the angelic visit and how he died, and you map that over John the Baptist, they're identical. They're identical. In Jesus, God is redeeming one of the worst stories and lives found in the Older Testament. Again, you can do that very quickly. You can take a look at Samson's birth story in Judges chapter 13 and and John the Baptist's birth story in Luke chapter 1, and they literally map over each other. In Jesus, God through John the Baptist is redeeming the story and the catastrophic life that we know as Samson. Just to give you a little hint, a woman brings Samson's demise at the end, and the same with John the Baptist. Now what we know, though, is that here John the Baptist is, and John the Baptist steps into the world scene in Jerusalem and becomes the Billy Graham of his day. And the text that we already read has told us in Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. This was a massive social movement. And they went out to him confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. You see, the question often is, how in the world would everyone have gone out to see John? First of all, there's something about any of us involved with pastoral ministry, you're trying to do something for God, location, location, location matters. Have you noticed that this church is built on a road that has 20,000 cars a day that go by it? Location matters. How many of you believe that to be true? Right? So what in the world is John doing out in the middle of the desert trying to start a movement? John, location, location, you're in the wrong spot. Well, here's why. John was dressing with camel hair, and he had a belt around a waist. He was dressing exactly how Elijah did in the Older Testament. You can read about that in the book of Kings. Elijah the prophet had a, he was covered in hair and had a belt. He was literally behaving and acting like Elijah. And guess where Elijah's ministry was? It was out in the desert. So John is stepping into the shoes of the most famous prophet from the Older Testament ever. And he's declaring that God's going to do a new thing. Get ready. Get ready. Because God's going to do a new thing. And every Jewish person knows that if God does something and you're not right with God, you either miss it or you get run over. 
And so all the nation is going out to John because they've been crying out for a deliverer. They've needed a deliverer. Someone's got to do something to relieve the oppression and the weight of the Roman Empire and the worldview that's beginning to take over the people. And so the text goes on to tell us that in the midst of all of John's fame, some were even saying, are you the Messiah? And John had to say, no, I'm not, I'm not. And then in Mark chapter one, verses seven through eight, it says, after this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with or in the Holy Spirit. So what the text tells us is that John is in the wilderness at the Jordan River. His prophetic voice, he's the last man ever to stand in the shoes of the Older Testament prophets. He's the last one. And he begins to announce that everything the prophets before him had promised is now here. Everything that the prophets had said is they looked at their world and knew that the world needs changing and redemption and saving, that God's man is finally here. And so here's John, and he says, if you think I'm something, wait for the next dude. Watch him and look for him. And then the text tells us, in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from, seven, from heaven that said, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. What's important to know is that God's announcement over Jesus is not random. Jesus, God the Father, as he speaks over his son, picked two specific verses from the Older Testament that he references. One is Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and the other is Isaiah 42, verse 1. That psalm declares that one day God's king will come. Isaiah chapter 42 does the same thing. It announces that one day, one awesome, awesome day, God's king will finally step into the world and bring about God's kingdom. And that is how God the Father declares his love for his son. How do we put feet to our faith with this message? I think about the scenario that we just read. We see Jesus, and he is standing in the Jordan River, and he is baptized by John. And John's baptism is a baptism of confession and repentance. Jesus had nothing to confess and had nothing to repent of. Nothing. And yet it was at that moment... Whereas Jesus comes up out of the water in the Jordan River, as he comes up out of the Jordan River, it says that the veil of heaven opens up and God the Father cheers from the stands in heaven and says, that's my boy. That's him. And I love him. That's him. And the question has to be, why now? Why why is that? Because here's the thing, Jesus hasn't done a thing. 
He hasn't preached, hasn't healed anyone, he hasn't done a single thing. All Jesus is in that moment is human. He's fully man and fully God, but he's fully human. And John the Baptist has said, that's, you know, that's him. And then heaven goes, yes, that's him. Now, if you think about what's happening, if I was God the Father, I think I would have waited for Jesus to get out of the water. And here's why. The water of baptism is about the dirt and the filth of the human soul. It's about the cleansing and the washing and the renewing of the human soul. You see, as a Jew, you go into baptism to cleanse yourself and to get the dirt and the grime and the grunge of this world off of you. I would have waited until Jesus got out of the Jordan and got all dried off with his beach towel. And then I would have said, that's him. But that's not what God does. God looks at his son as he identifies with me and with you in the sludge, in the grime, in the filth of humanity, and he was never prouder than that moment. It was then when God says, that's my boy. It's him. It's him. Some of us have grown up in contexts where we never had a dad that truly loved us. Some of us have grown up in contexts where we never heard the voice and the declaration of the affirmation that our soul needs. You never had that. My dad, and I've said this publicly for a long time, my dad is one of my heroes. My dad was quiet, he was introspective, he was very much within himself. My dad loved me and he verbalized that quite frequently. I remember the first time, though, I ever went up to my dad. I was in college, and he was paying for college, so I wanted to express my love for him. But I went up to my dad, and I put my arms around him, and I hugged him, and I said, Dad, I love you, and it was like hugging a telephone pole. My dad was German. It's like, what do I do? What do I do? Oh, my gosh, what do I do? The kid's hugging me. Is he okay? Is everything okay? You know, the amazing thing was is that every time after that, my dad hugged me and told me he loved me, every time. But even as growing up, I knew he loved me, and there's this one event in my life that is so pivotal to me. It's so pivotal. I've shared this before, that I played on the Nina, Wisconsin, Squirt B ice hockey team, and we won the state championship. I was nine years old. Man, let me tell you, Squirt B. Now, if you hear that appropriately, you know there they're all also has to be a Squirt A league. I wasn't good enough to play Squirt A. I played Squirt B. So I was on the Squirt B team, and we won the Wisconsin State Championship. But here's my full confession. I was the worst player on the team. Like if seven guys had to have knee replacements, I would have played on the team, right? I mean, it was just... <laughs> 
It was called riding the pines, sitting on the bench. I, I, and in the state tournament, I never saw one millisecond of skating time other than going from the locker room to the bench. And I sat way down on the end on the bench and just sat there, watched the game. Pretty good seats, actually, to watch the game. And then I would skate back to the locker room, not sweaty at all, take my clothes off and get ready for the next, but we won the state championship. And I will never forget going to bed that night, and I had two thoughts. We won the state championship, and I never played. I just remember that. Just, I was so excited that we had won, but I had never played. And I'll never forget what my dad did. He came into my bedroom, and he would kneel by our bed. My dad was not a person of faith until I was in grad school. But for some reason, he would always say a prayer with us when we were young in our individual bedrooms. And it, the prayer went, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. By the way, that's not the best prayer to pray over your kid <laughs> just as they're falling asleep. What if I die? Oh, no, I'm going to die. You know what I mean? So anyway, that was my dad's prayer. And at the end of that prayer, I always had to list every relative I knew in prayer. It was Uncle Ted, Annie Janet, Uncle Fred. You would just go through the whole list and we'd say amen. And at the end of that, my dad just put his hand on his, my head and he said, way to go, champ. Wow, never forgot it. He walked out of the room and I thought, I'm a champ. But here's the thing. Some of us have never had that. Ever. In fact, you can be up in your 60s, 70s, and 80s and still have the weight of not having heard what your soul needs to hear. Here's what I want to say. Jesus, when he stands in the waters of baptism, stands there for all humanity. He is fully human. Fully. And as he stands there in that water... In the sludge, in the grime of the human race, his dad was never prouder, and he never had done a thing other than step into the water. That's it. All that Jesus had done up until this point was to be human, and God declared his unconditional fatherly love for him. And God cheers from the stands of heaven Jesus hadn't skated on the ice one millisecond yet. And God declares from heaven, that's my boy. That's him. And I love him. And whether you're a woman or a man, you've got to believe that when Jesus stands in those waters, he stands in your stead and mine. And the Gospel of John is quick there to say that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus' mission is about the love of God for those people who've never heard that. Never, ever heard that. That's his mission in this world, is to bring and to show God's love to a sinful humanity who has such a hard time believing that God honestly loves us. And some of us sitting here believe this, that God loves everyone else that sits on the bench on the team, and you uniquely are unloved. It's not true. The story of God 
and the story of Jesus stepping into this world is God has utterly committed himself to loving humankind. He's done it through Jesus. Let's stand together as we take a moment in God's presence. As we stand together, can we close our eyes in God's moment? As we close our eyes, if you're comfortable doing this, I would just simply ask you to put your hands up in front of you. And if you're not, that's fine. But if you're comfortable just putting your hands in front of you is a sign of surrender and receptivity to God. Can we take a moment in God's presence? Let's take a moment to open ourselves by faith to Jesus. God, in this moment, as we daily stand in the river of the brokenness of humankind, of the dysfunction and the sin and the corruption of our own lives, as we stand in that river, God, help us to hear your voice that in Christ you love us As human beings, you love us. God, touch all of our hearts. Help us all to begin this journey into the gospel of Mark, believing that there's a God that truly loves us. That it's not about what we've done or we haven't done. We have a Father that desperately loves us and loves us too much to leave us the same. Jesus, I pray that you would touch every woman and every man in this sanctuary. Touch us. And we pray these things in Christ's name.